0: What if everything you thought and believed about successful buying, selling, and financing your home was wrong? Welcome to HomeWise with Michael Midget. This is where you can count on straightforward, objective advice on the right way to make the most out of every dollar you put into your home. Whether it's buying, selling, or financing, even maintaining and growing its value along the way. Coming to you from the News Talk STL studios at Union Station in St. Louis. Welcome to HomeWise. I'm Stel Pontikas with the host of HomeWise, Michael Midget. And if this is your first time joining us, welcome aboard. We're glad you're with us. Michael, good to see you, buddy. How are you? Hey, good, Stel. How are you? Doing fine, thank you.
1: You know, a thought came to mind here when just a second ago when you said that. If this is your first time joining us, if you are brand new to HomeWise Radio, you got a little bit of catching up to do. Fortunately, you can find all those episodes on the internet, uh, or some would say the interwebs. Uh, at homewiseradio.com, um, this episode, once we, uh, publish it and all the previous 43 episodes now, um, are available on the site. So you can go back, you can peruse them, you can watch them in whatever order you want. You can fast forward, rewind, pause, listen again, you know, take note, all that, all that kind of great stuff. Cause sometimes, you know, we've been accused of getting a little thick. Into the, the weeds. Is. Yeah. <laughs> well, not, not necessarily into the weeds. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, we definitely go there too, but <laughs> I'm just talking about, you know, the subject matter gets, you know, gets a little deep Yeah, and sometimes I'm always pushing the, edge of the edges of the box. Sometimes I venture outside of the box, not in a risky, exotic or crazy way, but just alternative ways of thinking about things that we're already doing. And, um, uh, We look at it in other ways so that we can try to find meaning or purpose to what it is we think we're supposed to be doing, but often wonder maybe why, or maybe we don't even question why and we just do it. And then if we don't get the result, we wonder why we did that. And oftentimes it just, for me personally, that just, it leads me to deep introspective, I guess, digging or research into how how to do this and in doing so uh, what I discovered because I've done this basically my whole entire career turns out that what we think we're supposed to do when we're buying a house tends to go polar opposite to what we would do when we're managing our money say like from a financial planning perspective okay so financial planners look at different things different aspects they generally don't get into mortgage lending or home buying. Um, I've even come across some financial planners that won't advise on that. And I don't, I mean, it's kind of strange, like, well, it's, an, it's in a financial asset. Um, it's an investment. And I want you to make a mental note there because we're going to deep dive into that aspect of this today and really answer that question. But some financial planners won't even really go much beyond the superficial surface part of it. More often than not, just agreeing with the client as far as whatever they whatever they already believe. Um, so, things like you know, smallest mortgage possible versus largest mortgage possible um, goes against what Rick Edelman is famous. Not I don't know famous or not, but he's a celebrity type, uh, well-known financial advisor has mm-hmm. a nationwide show. Uh, I forget the name of it offhand, but I. I follow him uh, because he does deep dive into into mortgages, even though he is strictly a financial planner, doesn't do mortgages. But um, what his views are as far as taking out the biggest, longest mortgage you can. And not just, okay, that's what you're supposed to do, now go do it, but supporting that with the why. Okay, And when we were talking about the last few weeks about the private banking or the personal banking model, and how, how to use that to approach the home buying transaction. I made the comment that if you follow this model, you would, or if you then applying the question, how much should I put down on a home purchase? How much should we finance? How, how should we do this? Because it's a very common question that I get. And I have to be careful how I answer it because if I answer it in such, I won't say the wrong way, although it does end up being the wrong way. If I answer it in a way that, does not resonate with the prospect or the client or whoever it is that I'm talking to. It's not that I'm just saying something to pander them to agree, but if I say it wrong or if I present it in the wrong way, they'll shut it out. Right. Because Mm. it's just so polar opposite from, you know, they're, they're coming in thinking like, okay, we're going to at least do 20, you know, but we want to talk about how much we should put down. You know, what do you think? Well, I know from experience they're talking about it's a minimum of 20. Should we put down more? Mm. But my personal uh, preference of thinking about this using the private banking model um, and keeping in tune with Rick Edelman and that is go the other direction, which is a smaller down payment, right? Because you don't want to tie your money up in the home because it's not working for you there. It's a lazy asset. There's no return on investment for home equity. Um, The only return that you get at all is the interest that you won't pay because you have a smaller mortgage, but you've also taken and lost the opportunity cost, remember? So we call this, you know, money we're putting down. Well, it's also called capital. And when we put it down on the house, it means we're tying it up in the property. We tie it up in the property, it can't do something else, right? Because there's only one thing you can do, do with a dollar at any one given time at least under conventional <laughs> uh, approaches, you know, or the what I call the status quo. So if you put it into the house, it can't do something else like put in your 401k. Hmm. And so if you don't have your 401k maxed out, at least to the point where your employer is matching it, because the employer match, you could argue that's free money, right? So there's a pretty good return on that free money. Um, you know, then you are you could say you're making a financial mistake, right? Now, nobody's going to jump out of the bushes after you do that and say, all right, don't do that. You know, nobody ever shows up. You don't get that pink slip or that, you know, that red post-it note or anything that says, hey, you're making a mistake. It's a mistake of I could have done something better with my money to get more return. But you never really notice it because no one's going to say, hey, it's bad advice to put more down on your home, right? Pay less interest, save money, minimize the cost of that home. Sounds great. But in the overall sense of your wealth, you have lost money. But it's money that you never see lost. It's just, it's gains that you didn't get because you had the money working at a lower rate of return or lower, you know, I say highest and best use for the money. That's what your goal is. Sinking it into the house when you could do something else that would return more um, is not its highest and best use, not a bad use, right? You're not going to go bankrupt doing that or nobody ever went to jail for giving the financial advice, put more doubt on your house. <laughs> but if we want to apply the banking model, we're comparing it to highest and best use for the money. Could I get it? Could I get better return for that somewhere else? Okay. So back during the pandemic, when we had two and 3% mortgages, and there's still, you know, there's a lot of people that have two and 3% mortgages today. Um, you know, putting more down on that is not, not a great financial idea. Okay. It's still a good idea to pay your house off. It's not a bad, it's not a bad idea. I say a good idea. I won't say a great idea unless you're somebody that just has trouble saving and you need, your savings needs to be somewhere where you can't, where you can't get to it. Mm. And so, Today, we were going to talk about the family home as an investment, right? As an investment vehicle. And, you know, depending on who you talk to, they might agree with that statement or they might, ah, stop right there. It's not an investment, you know? And you wonder why, because you always hear people say that, you know, the home, it's a good investment. You'll hear me say it, it's a good investment. But I think what happens is, it really turns out to be not the type of investment that you think of when you say investment, you're going to try to compare it to buying stocks or, uh, you know, 401k or, you know, mutual funds, ETFs. I think that's a better way to go now, but I'm not a financial planner, so I can't give it (laughs) financial (laughs) advice. Uh, so I'm certainly not doing that. Um, but I can give mortgage advice. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, it's not the type of investment you think it is. So, you know, if you think about the house, right, um, it is, it does not directly put money in your pocket, okay? Is there a financial gain for holding it? Well, if we look at what it's going to cost and then we look at what we're going to pay to own it over the, over the period of time that we're going to own it, it's likely going to cost us more than the property is worth, Okay. So, from that sense, you could argue that the home in and of itself, just by itself, is a poor investment. We don't get cash flow off of it. And we don't, it's not going to, it's going to appreciate, it's going to hold its value. It's going to do a great job holding its value. It's going to be stable over the long term, even the middle, middle to long term. And we expect it to go up steadily over time, over the mid to long term. But when we look at What our cost of ownership is, it's likely going to exceed what the value of that home is going to be at any one time. So not by a great degree, but it is going to look like a financial loser outside of one certain context. And so, well, wait a minute, you know, you're always saying, you know, go back to that statement about the home's a great investment. You know, everybody, I mean, a lot of people own, more people own homes than rent right? So the home ownership rate is over 60%. Uh, It fluctuates, you know, it it hovers somewhere between 62 and 67, depending on, you know, the economic conditions in that, but it's clearly over 50%. And, um, the, you know, could those people be wrong? Mm. Maybe. Mm -hmm. I mean, people do dumb things all the time (laughs) with their money, right? Well, all right. So, what you'll also find out is that the, the the real estate industry, the home, we'll call it the home ownership industry, I mean, it's one of the biggest industries out there. It might even be the biggest one. It's the one that will oftentimes lead us into recession. It will lead us out of recessions. It's often leading the economy in different things. It's it, it's very large. I mean, is everybody wrong?
0: You know, Is it the residential industrial complex? <laughs> well, I just made that up.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a word. I've heard that before. <laughs> Although I will be honest and say, I have no idea how to answer that question. (laughs) I'm not afraid to say, I don't know when I don't know.
0: Since everything these days has become an industrial complex.
1: Right. Well, you know, we're, you know, we're headed there. Um, In New York City, I just read and watched a thing on uh, their convert, you know, how they're like the, the remote work and, you know, people leaving the office or they've left the office during the pandemic. Now they don't want to go back. Mm -hmm. Blame them. It's not a... (laughs) Not mm-hmm. A pleasant place, especially when you can work from home, and you have a decent, you know, place to work from home. But they don't want to go back to work, so they've got all this excess office space out yeah. there. Yeah, and what to do with it? So they're talking about turning it into residential living space. Mm. So, I mean, in a way, that's an indu- that's not industrial, but it is commercial. No. <laughs> and yeah. turning it into residential. Um, that's in downtown Manhattan. Maybe a smart move. move and All that. If, yeah. If you can
0: if you can't lease out the property. Yeah,
1: that's true. Well, and that's when they were talking about doing it, they said that the existing structure there has very little value because what they would have to do to it to convert it to residential mm. is equal to, it's very near equal to, or very near what the cost is. The conversion cost is equal to knocking it down just building it. Building it from, it from building scratch. Building it, building it from scratch. Wow. Interesting. Which, which, you know, so the accountant in me says, oh, well, if it's the same price, knock it down, build it from scratch. Now you have a new now you have a new a new structure, right? I mean, that would make that would be the make sense to do. But the practical side of me says, wait a minute. I mean, the whole point of this entire conversation started off with we have something here that we have no use for anymore. Mm. So we're we can't, it's not its highest and best use isn't as commercial space anymore. We could turn it into something else. Right. So we're oh, we put we'll put people in there to live. Um Mm. but we're doing that asking that question because we have a structure here that we don't have something to do with. And so if we get to the end of that question and the answer is knock it down and build, rebuild it so that you wind up with something that's equal to or greater than if the cost is the same. I think, well, so politicians say, oh, you know, they'll rubber stamp that and boom, off off to the race as they go. My my thought is I go back to the very beginning and reexamine the initial question coming in, which is if we have this building here, we don't have something to do with it. We We explored one option with it. That option doesn't sound like it really panned out in the context of the original question. Maybe we should go back, ask the initial question again but ignore this one possible answer because there's got to be more potential answers, right? Maybe, maybe it's, maybe there's a better higher and better use than residential living space in this downtown area where this commercial building used to be. Right. So that is an example an exercise in the thought process that I applied it to a situation here that likely does not affect anyone listening to this directly, but the same thinking can be applied to your personal financial picture. So, mm-hmm. you know, going back to that original question, how much should we put down? You know, should we, uh, you know, should we finance or should we pay cash? Should we, you know, what, what should we do with our money? Well, you have, you can approach it from two ways. You can look at, okay, these are the commonly accepted ways and what I was already thinking, and I can pick one versus the other. Or I could go in with more of a blank slate and say, okay, I don't have any preconceived notions. What could I do? What, you know, what could make sense? And so I know people will often struggle with, myself included, if I'm thinking in an area that I don't have experience and I don't do a lot of work in. Uh, which is the average everyday person who doesn't buy a home or sell a home all the time. It only happens a few times over the course of your life, oftentimes. Mm-hmm. And um, so when you present them with the blank slate and say, hey, tell me tell me what your ideal scenario looks like or your ideal ideal outcome, you'll often get a deer in headlights, blank stare or whatever, you know, so... When I do that, and it's oftentimes it's over the phone, we will. I will feel that blank stare because they'll <laughs> start. Okay, I want to get pre-approved, so we we chat for a bit, and then I'll start asking them questions, and I will purposely start with a very open-ended question, which is, you know, how much were you thinking of putting down, and or maybe even something more blank, which is, um, what you know, what were you thinking of doing or something like that just to kind of gauge where they're at and, you know, in their thinking process. And then very quick, I'm prepared to the second that they sort of, you know, you can kind of feel that there's that pause, there's Mm -hmm. that deer in the headlights look, there's like, okay, well, I don't know. I never really thought quite thought of that. So then I will interject like, okay, you know, like when you go to the eye doctor and they say (laughs) A or B which one's clearer, which one makes more sense. Like, okay, so what do you think about this or that? You know, okay, we'll pick one of those two and then we'll kind of like work our way through it. And that's oftentimes, sometimes how you get to, uh, how, how you get to the right place. And I think that that is a better approach than just coming in and trying to shoehorn everybody into one of three things, you know, i are going to put down this much, this much, or this much. And you're either going to take this loan or that loan or whatever, and it, it 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 takes out the dynamic aspect of different people might have different better things to do with their money, or better might be varying levels of better based on who they are and what you know you know what they've got. So that questioning process will often involve more than just the home transaction itself. So we are going to dive more into that question exploring family home as an investment, how how we look at all that. Uh, and that statement I made about the home in and of itself is generally by itself, it's a poor investment. We will look into that more when we come back.
0: Okay. We'll take a quick break here. You're listening to HomeWise with your host, Michael Midget. I'm Stelpan Pontikas. Glad to have you along for the show. And we will return right after this quick break. Welcome back to HomeWise. I'm Stel Pontikas with the host of the show, Michael Midget. We're in the middle of our conversation here. So Michael, take it away, buddy.
1: Thanks, Stel. So if you're just joining us, uh, we have been talking about the family home as an investment. And is it a good one? And how do you go about it? And things like that. So in that last segment, I said something that if you're really paying attention, may have made you uh, spin around in your seat. Or just kind of scratch your head wondering why. And that was the statement that the home is a poor investment. Home's a poor investment. If you look at it, it is, it does not pay you money to live there. Um, It does not, it does not, what's the right way to say this? Um, It's likely going to cost you more than what it ends up being worth over time. Mm -hmm. Okay. So just real simple, you know, if we take the average home price in St. Charles County around 400,000 and it really doesn't matter if you borrow, you know, if you borrow 300 on that, if you borrow 350 on that, whatever that, you know, whatever that is, maybe you go upwards of 380, you know, if we just, you know, near the minimum down payment you're likely going to pay about double on that once you consider paying back the principal and then paying interest on that because the cost of the home is not the price tag on the home. It's a price tag plus the cost of financing. Okay, so we got to pay back the principal, the, the whatever you borrowed, and then you're going to pay generally what interest rates are today. You're actually going to pay back a little more than what you borrow if you were to look at a 30-year term. Um, but we'll just let's just round it off and just say say it's about double right and so over 30 years is the price of that home going to double and likely yes okay um if we take average appreciation rates but that's you know that does not take into account um the cost to insure it that does not take into account the taxes that you will pay associated with it that does not take into account the maintenance and the other things that you would have to put into it. So as far as, you know, if you're looking at the home purely as an investment, it's likely not going to look very good on paper in and of itself. All right. So what gives, I mean, (laughs) is everybody wrong? I mean, you know, home ownership rate, 60 plus percent, um you've heard me say it and i know every realtor will say it's a good investment of course you expect them to say it but even a financial planner will say that a home is generally a good investment well what we need to do in order to kind of wrap our minds around this is we need to really look at this differently okay reason being um it's not an either or decision okay because you have to live somewhere, all right? So a better way to evaluate it would be looking at it as one potential solution to a problem that we have to address, okay? Well, what's that problem? Problem is where we're going to live because you got to have a roof over your head, right? You got to eat. You're supposed to work. I guess you got to wear clothes. You're supposed to wear clothes, <laughs> um, you know, food, clothing, and what's the third one? Work. Shelter. Oh, shelter. Okay. Yeah. You got a food, clothing, and shelter, the three basic necessities. Um, and yes, you should work too. Otherwise you're going to have a hard time affording the three the three necessities too. So That's true. we will add the fourth necessity to the list. <laughs> um, but for everybody hanging out out there, you know, the three, those are the three, that, mm-hmm. you know, the three that come to mind. All right. So where am I going to live? So you're not evaluating home ownership and the investment, what you're going to put into it, right? So I said that you might need to redefine the way that you look at investment or is an investment true or false? Well, it depends on how you define the word. We need to look at it a little differently. We're going to evaluate it a little differently. You can't evaluate it in a vacuum because it's not, well, if I don't buy, then I just don't incur that cost, right? Because why would I do that? I have to live somewhere, so I'm either going to own or buy or I'm going to rent. So the evaluation in and of it, like looking at the house in and of itself as investment really isn't isn't fair, but I'm going to redefine that for you into a different light today to kind of make more sense with that. But you have to deal with uh, that how are you going to deal with the cost of where you live? Because you've got to live somewhere. You've got to have that have that roof over your head, all right? So once we get that, and everybody gets, I understand, everybody gets that. I didn't teach you anything there. But it's going to cost you money to put that roof over your head. Mm-hmm. So when people look at this, all right? So um, you have to look at the cost of homeownership in context of renting, and then when you're going to apply value to it, you know, a value equation, you're going to look at what you get for renting versus what you get for owning, right? And so when you do that, the money that you pay for rent, you don't get any any value for. the Well, you don't get any financial value for. What you get is utility value, right? Utility value. In this case, it's the roof over your head, all right? So you just said that Um, when you look at buying a home to look at it in purely financial terms, isn't being fair because when you're buying the home, it's also delivering to you a utility value in addition to the financial, the financial value. So really the way to look at it is how do we, one, how do we separate the two? Right? So, in this case, the utility value is going to be equal to the rent value because if you rent, that's all you get. Okay, What's it going to cost to put that roof over your, over your head? And then when you're looking at the buying of the home, okay, it's you're factoring out what that, like netting out of the cost of that, the equal cost of renting because you're going to look at it incrementally between, between the two. And then what's that additional cost And then what what do I get additionally for that in the terms of of, of financial uh, financial benefit? So this is what leads people to uh, focus on cost minimization when they're buying, right? So if we bring this back to when somebody's actually buying a house and they're trying to figure out what to do, they're looking at ways to minimize that cost. In other words, minimize that payment. So they want to... Negotiate the price, right? Get me a lower price, save money when I buy the home, I can get more, I can get what I need for less money, that equals less down payment, less less monthly payment, right? Or they will focus on the interest rate and to get a lower rate, they can get a same size loan, or the same house for less money um, and uh, less payment. Or they will, if they're not necessarily payment sensitive, they will look at wanting to shorten the term because as you shorten mm. the term, you reduce the amount of interest paid. And that's really the thing, you know, they equate it to flushing money down the toilet, right? Now, I look at it a little bit differently because you have got to live somewhere, right? <laughs> um, but paying, paying interest, it's for the rent, it's basically interest is just rent on the money. So when you when, when you're gonna live, you're gonna rent something, you're either gonna rent the place or you're gonna rent the money. If you rent the money, you get the place. Well, if you rent the place, all you get is the place. If you rent the money, you get the place and the use, the use of the money. You own, you know, you own the asset. So as time goes on, um, that builds up equity as you make those payments. So that's actually that will turn into another factor that you can net out of that equation. Anyway, without doing some heavy-duty math here, which we can't really do on the radio, anyway, um, you will come up with there is a net positive net ownership to to owning. All right, hmm. and so if your um, if your goal is maximizing your overall wealth, right? How much money? Because really, at the end of the day. That's what matters, right? What, what we end up, you know, what we end up with. We try to make that number work. We try to make that number better by optimizing or maximizing or minimizing, in this case, the cost of every, each individual little thing, you know? So when we buy a car, we, we evaluate that car in a vacuum by itself, right? And when we buy other things, we sort of think about that in its own little box. And when we buy a house, we think of it in its own little box. But see, none of these things exist in their own little box. They all exist inside a larger, a larger box. And that larger box is reality. It's where we live. It's the one that we really have to, really have to deal with. So if we're only focusing on, in this case, let's just use the house as an example. We run the risk of, we did something that minimized the cost of the house, but it minimized our ability our net wealth effect over time to a greater degree so even though it looked like the right thing to do with the house in the grand scheme of things of what our overall goal was it turned out to not be the right the right thing and it's difficult to see unless you look at look at everything as a whole so when i was going through the list and i was saying you know reduce the loan amount reduce the rate reduce the term balance that with monthly payment and get something to where you know looking at making larger down payments not smaller down payments and using up more cash spending more cash violation of rule number 1 um that is focusing on the home buying transaction right it's it's focused on that box just the home buying transaction by itself and it does not consider the overall the overall effect and so when you do that you don't you know systems theory you will not um you don't optimize a system by optimizing each of the individual parts you optimize a system by evaluating all the individual parts and their integration together to produce whatever the output or the outcome of that system of that system is right so where it might look like making a larger down payment and an ever larger down payment on a house. And the easiest way to see it is just paying cash. You know, if you could write one check, hmm. if you if you had $500,000 in the bank and you wanted to buy a $500,000 house, Hey, you know what? I hate mortgages. I don't want a mortgage. I got the cash. Let's just spend the cash to buy the house. Well, now we got the house. I got 500,000 in equity, right? It's not growing. Okay. House and equity are different. They're two separate things. The house is going to go up, up, up in value or down in value, or it's going to do, whatever it's going to do, irrespective of the mortgage that's on it. Okay. So it doesn't matter whether it's mortgage to the hilt or it has no mortgage on it at all. It's going to go up at whatever it's going to go up in. But that money that's, you know, I'll say trapped inside that house in the form of home equity isn't, isn't working for us. It's not producing a, producing a return whereas if we had it outside the house we could do something with it now if it's just going to sit in a savings account that's no good mm-hmm. because we could take that money and invest it into the mortgage because that's essentially what we're doing get a rate of return roughly equal to um, the uh the interest rate on that mortgage okay now that's actually not exactly right okay but in order to really get it right we would have to uh incorporate tax deductions, potential tax deductions that you have in there. And then you would also need to factor in the inflation effect over time. And that really turns out to be the big one Mm. is looking at, you know, if target inflation is 2% over time, each month, each year, your money is devaluing by 2%, except on a long-term 30 year fixed rate mortgage, that payment isn't going up. Your the rate is staying the same. The payment is staying the same. And in fact, the amount of interest that you're paying is going down because you're paying the loan back and you only pay interest on what you owe, not what you originally borrowed. So because it's an amortized loan, it has payback built into it. And then you let, um, and this is probably the most overlooked fact and financial mechanism associated with mortgages and real estate and finance that I've ever seen in my entire life, myself included, before it was shown to me and that, I, and when I saw it, I was like, oh how I can't like this. This really explains why people that buy homes and successfully own those homes over time wind up with more money than people who rent and don't don't own homes. Mm. And it doesn't have, it does, I mean, it has to do with appreciation and it has to do with pay down and things like that. But what it really has to do with more than anything else and it's the thing you also don't think of if you're renting is the escalation of what those rents are going to cost going into the future. So, when you buy and you have a mortgage, the, those mortgage costs are going down over time. If you're renting, that rent is going up over time. These are moving into in two different directions. So, if you have a long enough time hold hold frame, right? So we've been talking about five years being that being that uh, that hold time and we've talked about it in terms of stability with the, the market as you know sometimes home values go down in the short term but if you're looking at a long enough hold time you're you they are likely to uh they're likely to at least be flatlined or or growing right so you don't lose your money cuz that's what people are worried about people are worried about risk are very mm. risk averse all right but the biggest risk of all <laughs> is what that, if you don't own, what are those costs going to do over time? So the one of the largest, so now go back to what I said, the home is a poor investment. One of the largest costs of that, of that, uh, of that ownership is going to be the the cost that you pay for the money. Mm. Well, that cost for the money goes down over time, not up over time, Right. So when you bake all that together, you wind up with, you wind up with more money when you own than, than if you rent. And it's not always quite apparent unless you recognize and pay attention to that darn inflation figure. Mm. So there's that word. It just keeps cropping up everywhere. Now it might be, it might seem like it makes more sense why the fed and every economist and everybody is so worried about inflation. And why maybe you should, I'm not going to say be worried about it, but be aware of it because mm-hmm. you can't control it personally, but you can use it to make better financial decisions with. So um, we're going to go to break here, but when we come back, we're going to re-enter, I'm going to re-look at um, that, you've heard me say before, the third—the miracle of the 30-year fixed rate tax deductible mortgage, Right that is, that's, that's really it. Okay. So we're going to bring all this together, uh, next segment.
0: We'll take a quick break here. That's Michael Midget, host of HomeWise. Glad that you're along. I'm Stel Pontikas. Hope you're enjoying the show so far. We'll take a quick break and come back right after this. Welcome back to HomeWise. I'm Stahl Ponticus with the host of the show, Michael Midget. And uh, Michael, we're in, the, we're in the middle of this conversation, heading down the home stretch here. <laughs> so uh, feel free to keep it going here, buddy. It is the home stretch.
1: So, um, you know, I every week I start out trying to keep it light and airy and fun and maybe interject some jokes. And we always wind up into some deep, heavy heavy thoughts. And I think the reason for that is because one, there's, there's, there's a lot here. Okay. And I, I know for a fact that most of it gets brushed over, probably even unknown to most of the profession, most of the professionals in my field, mortgage, real estate, insurance, you know, all, all of that, because it's almost never talked about Mm. even, you know, not, you know, maybe you know, some would argue, well, you know, you don't want to talk about this to clients or prospects because, and I hate that word prospects, by the way, <laughs> uh, it just seems like it's not how I think of it. It's, it's just me talking to to somebody, but you know, they're not going to understand it. They're not interested. They don't do whatever. And I think, you know, it kind of makes me think back to kind of, you know, some of the thoughts I have about some of the other financial pundits like Dave Ramsey and that, where, They're making a decision on behalf of people that they don't want something just because maybe they don't react to it the way that, uh, you know, the way that they want them to, uh, or it doesn't serve a purpose in trying to sell them something. And I, you know, I just, I have a different, a different look at this. You know, my, my goal here, my purpose is not to sell you something. It's to educate you so that you are better equipped to make a better financial decision if and when you buy, sell, refinance, get asked advice by somebody else who's mm-hmm. looking to buy, sell, refinance, mm-hmm. or something like that, because buying a home, financing a home, how you pay for it is one of the biggest decisions you're ever going to make in your life. Okay, The decisions wrapped around that decision, that, that act, buying, financing, and all that are going to have a larger effect on the financial outcome, how successfully that home contributes to your overall personal wealth when you retire, than any other aspect of this. Okay, so you've t- we've talked about the home is the most important piece, it's the epicenter of your personal financial picture. It touches more of all the other. It has more of an effect on all the other parts of your finances than any other thing you're going to buy or own or do. It's the home, it's the center, it's the epicenter, it's the nest egg. It's all these different people have different ways of thinking about it or quantifying that in their minds. Um, it's your largest payment. It's the biggest purchase you're going to make. It's where most of your money is going to wind up being tied up. <laughs> um, you're going to mm. spend more money on this than you are on any other thing. And it all matters. Okay. So it's not like renting, it's a long-term decision, it's an ownership decision. If you do it right, um, not only is it going to help you financially, but it also helps you mentally and socially and all those other things that go along with it. So the decision to buy is rarely solely a financial decision. Okay. Now if you've never bought and owned before, that may not make sense to you but i can promise you once you do own and buy something you are going to become mentally attached to that house it's going to be your nest it's going to be your home base it's the place i mean if for nothing else it's the it's the place where you wind up at night it's the place where all your stuff is it's it's uh you know when you fill out a form and they want your address you know, you ever have that feeling like, I remember when I rented an apartment and I used to move around a lot because it was fun moving around. It's like exciting. You know, I get a new place every 12 <laughs> months, you know, but golly, you know, I mean, the forms I filled out last year are going to a different address and then you're trying to do the, the mail forwarding thing and,
0: you know, oh, those gosh. run
1: out and like, does it actually, I mean, I still don't know how it actually works. I'm sure there's mail I didn't get, but you know, when you're 20 something, how important can your mail be anyway? <laughs> You know, and nowadays, I guess it's email anyway. So maybe that's not even a, even a concern anymore, but until, until I owned and bought, that's been a while, Mm -hmm. right? So I'm thinking way back, but when I first owned and bought, it was, there was a little transition period there where I had to kind of get used to it. It took about a month or two.
0: (laughs) And there's a psychological difference between being a renter where you're not technically responsible for the property, quote unquote, and then you've got the responsibility of being a homeowner and actually having to deal with handling the property on a day-to-day basis.
1: Yeah. And it seems, you know, if you haven't owned before, that might seem overwhelming and why in the world would I want that? But it really isn't, it's not that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, it's just another thing that you deal with. But, you know, think of it this way. Uh, If you rent, depending on where you rent, you might park your car in a parking lot. Mm -hmm. Well, when you come home at night, if you're coming home late at night, which, you know, at the age most people are renting like that and most apartments that they might be renting, there may not be a convenient parking place, or there might not be one on the end. Are you gonna get dings in your car? Or when it snows, it's gonna be under two feet of snow because you don't have a garage or or whatever. And then like somebody else shoveled their car out and piled all the snow behind your. I mean, these <laughs> are all things that have happened to me before. Like, you know, ask me how I know. <laughs> um, you're right. There is a there is a huge psychological difference with that that permeates itself through all of the other aspects of your life and I think you just sum it up kind of like by growing up you know you grow up you're supposed to you're supposed to have a place that doesn't mean that when you get older you, you have to buy something but at least you are you're making that decision you have all of the information associated with that so when you're looking at this so back to the Hey they don't really want to know that information right mm. well, I think maybe they don't want to know the information because they didn't know the information was there to know in the first place, and maybe they had never met somebody that was willing to take the time to do to do any explanation with it and maybe it was not explained to them in a way that was relatable and make it make it you know you know make it matter so. Before we run out of time today, I want to make sure that I get to that the crux of that idea, which is in segment one, I made the statement that the home in and of itself is a poor investment. All right. You're going to pay, you're going to put more money into it than you're going to get out over time if you do the conventional things with the home. So if you take out an ordinary mortgage and you pay that ordinary mortgage, uh, the longer you own it, the more you're going to get out because that mortgage over time becomes less expensive or dare I say cheaper. Mm -hmm. Just you pay less interest over time because the loan pays down. It's an amortized loan and the fixed rate and then inflation goes the other direction and you're making more and more money. So it's easier and easier to make Mm. and all that. Whereas the alternative is when you're renting, your rents are going to be escalating over time. It's going to be costing more and more and more generally keeping pace with inflation. Um, But the home in and of itself is not a good investment. You there's something that you have to do or you the, another way to look at it to evaluate its true, dare we say, investment you know, uh, value to it. And you're going to look at it in terms of renting, right? So take the rent cost, subtract that out. The longer you own the house, the cheaper it gets, the better that equation all looks because your rents are going to be escalating, inflation going. So hmm. the longer you own that, except... People don't own homes for 30 years. They really only own homes for 5 to 10, maybe 15 years until they get to that one home. And maybe it's, you know, they're forever, you know, they're forever home. Most people don't start out there, uh, but everybody ends ends there. So those first homes, they actually have a little bit more cost with them because you never get out of those early, those early years in the mortgage. That's where you're paying more interest because you haven't begun to pay the loan back yet through the amortized the amortized payments. So does that mean that you have to, you know, eventually this thing sucking air <laughs> until mm. it gets to mm. a certain point where it starts to make sense? And like, yeah, there is a break even, there is a break even to it, mm. but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to start over each time that you, that you buy a house. You just have to keep track of the, as you know, like when you, w- when you sell one house and you move to another one, or maybe you buy another one and keep keep the other one that you're keeping track of your chips that keeping track of your chips, right? Okay. So you're gonna, you're gonna have that, but there's another aspect. We talked about the utility aspect. So it's the roof over your head. That's why you can subtract the rent out of the, the cost of owning equation to, to look at what that difference is between owning and renting. And when you look at it that way, it tends to favor owning if you have a long enough five year plus time horizon. But what about there? There is another aspect to it, all right, and it goes beyond just the house—the house itself. But it's the opportunity that resides within within the buying of the home or the owning of the home um, that is unique unique to the home, all right. So we've said that there's a utility value to it. We get that with renting also, right? So there's, I think your utility value with owning the home is probably greater because you probably have more space and, you know, other things that, you know, that go along with it. But um, when you, when you look at this, there are, there isn't a, there's a big additional value to owning, owning a home. And it comes down to, we hinted before last segment at talking about the, the you know, the, the miracle of the 30-year fixed rate mortgage, Warren Buffett's favorite, ex- favorite mm-hmm. investment, <laughs> and the way that it makes a home cheaper over time because it basically gets inflated, it gets inflated away. The home is special, it has special, special value called collateral value. Oh, so that is that word again, right? So we're thinking back now to the banking model where I talked about collateralization. Don't spend your capital, collateralize it. Okay. Well, when you're buying a house, don't write a check. Even if you're able to write a check, borrow the money. Because likely over time, the cost of that money is going to be less than what the other thing is that you could do, that you could do with the money. Well, but let's say you can't write one check to start out with. You have to start out where everybody else does. So over time, you're, you, are, you, you are building that equity. As that equity builds up, it's a store of capital. It has no ROI on it. There is stored value there that you're probably not realizing. Okay, So now it's really easy to see if I apply a, an example to it. Right. So now if you listen every week, this will be a worn out example for you. But you know where I'm going still <laughs> debt consolidation. Right. It, that, you know, oh, I heard it. Yeah, that makes see, that makes sense to people. But when we look at it in this model, what you're doing is you're taking the collateral value. If you do it with a home equity line of credit and you do it the way that I told you to do it in previous weeks. If you miss that, then go back to the previous week's shows, homewiseradio.com. They're all there. Check them out. Um, if, you, if you do that, you are making use of that home equity. You can get a better home equity loan than you can other kind of loan to do that consolidation with. The consolidation accelerates the debt elimination plan or the snowball plan, right? So if you, the Dave Ramsey people out there, if I say debt snowball, you know what I'm talking about. For those, for the other people, it's just a plan to eliminate your debt where you focus on one debt at a time. And as you pay it off, you recapture that payment and apply it to the next debt along with any other money you can throw at it. Well, consolidation adds to the amount of money that you can throw at it. So you get through it faster. The faster you go, the more success that you have. What makes that possible? So when I say consolidation, I'm talking about debt consolidation loan. And more often than not, it's always going to be a loan secured by the home in the form of a home equity line of credit. Today, I think that's the best way to go because of the interest rate environment that we're in. Mm. You can also do it with a cash out refinance, but most people are going to be better off doing the home equity line and keeping the mortgage that they have in place. But again, you got to do the analysis, right? So you can't, I can't just say that matter of fact and move on. Mm-hmm. It's got to be analyzed. Okay. But for all the analyzers that are recommending a cash out refinance, I would say to them, did you look at doing a home equity line by itself and keeping the first mortgage in place, especially if it's one of those two or 3% mortgages that that are out there, right? So mm. everybody has to look at their own particular case, but any, either way you go, whether it's a home equity line on a second lien or the debt consolidation first cash out first mortgage, you're leveraging home equity. So the same, special loan that you use to acquire the property with that made it affordable because you didn't have the money to write one check. And if you did have to write the money for one check to write one check, it's an incredible amount of money to put out there in the first place and lose the value and the benefit of. You can break it up over time and own it with a mortgage. And then what it does, it gives you the opportunity to become an owner, begin building equity, and then if you want to accelerate that process of the way that home ownership builds your wealth over time, which again, remember I said it was a poor investment, I'm going to substitute a new word in there, savings vehicle, hmm. All right. If we look at it in the form of a savings vehicle, so we look at saving up home equity, you know, um, I mean, a home does have on average a 3% appreciation rate over time and it's pretty stable. You know, it can be a good savings vehicle. And then on top of that, when you factor in the utility or the roof over your head value of it, and then we don't even have to go to all the psychological, emotional, mental benefits. They, they go along with it, which you alluded to earlier, Stell. Uh, great job, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes, that's what makes home ownership a winner. But don't ignore the value of the home the equity that's in the home, the ability to use those two things together to collateralize a loan to do something valuable with. Okay. So when I put it to you in the terms of debt consolidation, it makes, it makes sense, but it doesn't have to just be a debt consolidation. You could put anything on that home equity line and you can pay it off the way that I showed you to do it last week, which leverages 100% of your income while it's outstanding Instead of parking money in a, sa- in a checking account or a savings account and waiting for it to evaporate or road away, letting the bank use that money, you can get the use of that money to reduce your, your inherent costs. Mm. At the point you get to the point where you are able to take that draw on the home equity line and use it to buy an asset that produces cash, you have now started a mechanism an additional wealth acceleration mechanism. I don't have a better word for it than that at this point. Um, but yesterday I was just talking to a real estate agent. I teach CE classes for, the, uh, for one of the local, the St. Charles Association of Realtors here. And we were talking about something else, but in the terms of that conversation, she brought up, uh, oh yeah, we, we invest in real estate and we use a home equity line of credit to acquire the properties with, right? So whether you're acquiring the whole property with it or if you're using it as the, to come up with the down payment and then letting the property hold its, hold, I mean, depending on how much equity you have, that might be a better way to go. Hmm. Um, but that is a point when you buy the rental properties, presumably they're going to cash flow. Okay. So they're going to cover, uh, the cost of that ownership and hopefully throw off a positive uh, cash flow. Um, and then presumably they're going to appreciate over time. All right there are other there are other types of investments that do similar things like dividend paying stocks. Now uh, you're probably not going to have the same uh, positive cash flow from that that you might have with a rental property, but the skill level is less, to just own something that you can passively own and have it kick off money than if you're going to manage the real estate. Or you might go real estate fund, you know, REIT, investment trust, whatever. Uh, that is a hybrid of, you know, those two things where it, it it acts like a fund that you don't have direct, it's a passive investment, but it's in real estate. And so, um, again, I'm not a financial planner, so I'm not recommending anything in particular. I'm just throwing, you know, rough asset classes out there but the idea is that you are spending that money. It's spend, that's a dangerous word to mm-hmm. use because you know it goes against rule number one, but you are spending that money that it's, you're, going to get, you're going to get something back from. So something that holds its value plus kicks off cash, it will self-finance, finance itself. Mm. And if it doesn't, you don't do it, right? So this isn't something that you have to do. But as I meet a lot of people, especially right now with property values going up over time, you got a low 2% mortgage on your, on your house and you're just, your, your equity is ballooning, you know, and what do we do? Like, that is like, you know, you don't have to do anything with it, but you could look at using that as a platform to grow, grow more wealth. Right. So, that is the point there coming up with the home um, looking at it as an investment vehicle. I think it's actually better thinking of it as a savings vehicle that has a steady predict- predictable growth over time, but you can greatly modify or improve the net wealth effect of that home. When you're able to utilize that equity, once you've got it built up to do other things with over time that mm. add to your, to your overall picture so that's an example of using the home in such a way that it uh, builds your personal financial picture and helps provide for retirement. So up until retirement, you are you are uh, you're piling up money, but you're also presumably building building a cash flowing portfolio of things that, maybe you can retire early or when you get to retirement, you have thing, you have income there that's passive or whatever, not related to your job that you can, that you can rely on. So that's it.
0: Hmm. Well, that's a great way to look at it. So thanks for all that information.
1: Uh, that wraps up this edition
0: of HomeWise. That's Michael Midget. I'm Pontika's Glad that you were able to join us. Hope all the information was, uh, was very uh, informative for you and hope you'll join us again next weekend for another edition of HomeWise with Michael Midget. Loans and loan information provided by Shelter Mortgage Inc. Visit us at shelter.com and MLS number 192609. A Missouri residential mortgage licensee and equal housing lender. Call 888-497-2558 for additional cost information. Other restrictions may apply.